to the third episode of Sass Mouth Dames podcast. Today I'm talking about Hold Your Man from 1933, starring Jean Harlow, Dorothy Burgess, Clark Gable, and Teresa Harris, directed by Sam Wood with a script by Anita Luce. You can find it by Googling Hold Your Man 1933 Watch Online. You'll find a link for a Russian website with ok.ru in the URL. I know it sounds dodgy, but, you know, you can find it there. Recently, a lovely woman who's a regular member of the Sassmouth Dames Film Club told me that she had watched Redheaded Woman and couldn't believe Anita Luce wrote it. I responded that Anita Luce felt awful about the movie she wrote for Jean Harlow in a role she described as a sex pirate. The picture made a bundle for MGM, even though it isn't very good. I blame Irving Thalberg's meddling with the plot. He wanted audiences to laugh at Harlow's character rather than laugh with her. Redheaded Woman rates is one of Harlow's roles where, as Molly Haskell puts it, she's no friend to her own sex. And that's why it doesn't hold up. But Anita Luce wrote five scripts for Jean Harlow. They were a dynamite team. Hold Your Man from 1933 ranks as the best of them, with The Girl from Missouri a close second. Hold Your Man screened in November as part of the Sassmouth Dames Film Club Series 1 pre-code Woman Pictures. It was hands down the most popular film in the program. The audience raved about it. After the phenomenal success of Red Dust in 1932, Thalberg, as head of production for MGM, asked Anita Luce to write an original sex comedy for Jean Harlow and Clark Gable. That was a really big deal. Studios preferred to adapt scripts from stories, novels, and plays because they felt it was less risky since there was an identifiable audience. His invitation was a testament to the faith he had in her talent as a writer. She was an international sensation once she published Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1925, a serialized magazine feature turned to novel that made her $1 million between publication and the stock market crash in 1929. Unfortunately, her deadbeat husband squandered her fortune on bad investments, hence her contract in MGM. Anita was 43 when she started her second career in Hollow as a Hollywood scriptwriter. She had an earlier run writing for The Silence, which began when she was 24 years old. She wrote hits for D.W. Griffith, Mary Pickford, Lillian Gish, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., and Constance Talmadge, amongst others. Anita took a story from her file and wrote the script. It was called Black Orange Blossoms, the title's name taken from a popular cocktail. The title changed to He Was Her Man and then Nora before it became Hold Your Man. It was about two con artists who meet and fall in love. Before production began, Irving sailed to Europe to recover from a heart attack. That left Louis B. Mayer in charge of the project. David Sten's biography, Bombshell, The Life and Death of Jean Harlow, reports that Mayer objected to the title. He didn't think a reference to an, a an alcoholic beverage belonged on a prestige picture. He refused to accept Jean's character Ruby in promiscuous relationships and wanted an element of reform put into the script. He didn't want the Hayes Code office to accuse him of glorifying sexually adventurous women. Critics point to this as the fatal flaw of the picture, but without it, you lose all the conflict and the opportunity for the characters to grow and change. So maybe Louis B. Mayer was right after all. I can't see this picture working without the reversal of fortunes. Critics balked at its premiere. 
The film played to packed houses everywhere. It made a 400% profit for MGM. In one year, Jean Harlow's pictures made $3 million for MGM. She made $1,500 a week. Anita Luce's script contains the hallmarks of her best work, snappy dialogue, and an essential belief in the decency of folks when you're down on your luck. In 1933, Dorothy Burgess must have paused over her reflection and wondered what it was about herself that suggested prison inmate. Cast in two women's prison stories that year, Ladies They Talk About and Hold Your Man, she receives more character development in the latter picture. Anita Luce deviates from the standard rivalry dynamics and creates a flesh-and-bones woman rather than a two-dimensional cartoon character looking for a cat fight. Burgess's character changes from just an adversary for Clark Gable's affections to Harlow's ally in beating the prison system. Luce and Rogers crafted a standout script, one that not only breaks stereotypes about conflict between women, but also racial stereotypes about the moral high ground. At the start, it doesn't look like a woman's picture. It follows Clark Gable's point of view while he conducts a touch with a man on the street over a wallet with $2 and a Woolworths diamond ring. When his mark discovers the con game, that he spent $30 to take ownership of a rock suited for a gumball machine rather than a jeweler's window, he summons a policeman. They chase Eddie, who ducks into Ruby's flat to avoid arrest. Ruby covers for him and introduces Gable as her husband once he's covered with soap bubbles in her bathtub. Eddie observes photograph um, studio portraits dedicated to Ruby from the men in the, in the Navy, boxing ring, and firehouse. Like many men, he, pay, he makes assumptions about a woman based on how she pays her bills. Harlow recognizes Eddie's game because she plays the same racket. She helps herself to a tenor from Eddie's stash to cover laundry and vouchsafe expenses. When he takes the robe she gives him while his clothes dry, he quips, Say, this is a man's bathrobe. Ruby replies, You don't say. Ain't you the bright little thing? Harlow shines next to Gable's dim bulb con artist. In the next scene, set in a nightclub, Ruby hides her clutch purse in a bin in the powder room so that she can lament its loss with her $25 rent money to her gullible date. Louise Beavers, as the helpful attendant, retrieves Harlow's clutch bag and brings it to the table, spoiling the blonde's ruse. Living on a string of short return con games seems to require a lady to be, to be always punched in on the clock. Ruby objects when Eddie arrives and shakes down her date using a fixed dollar um, bill poker game. Ruby later knocks on Eddie's door to complain dressed in a bonkers frock that comes out of her coat like a pop-up book. It's fabulous from Adrian, naturally, with sleeves bearing striped twist ties that spring out from the side. Lobby cards for the picture have the dress in a pale ice blue and the stripes on the shoulder um, twist in red. Even though we see her in the dress in an earlier scene, it doesn't make a big uh, uh, of an impression as when it comes out of the coat, one twist sprung out at a time. She doesn't want to see it on the couch, she, she says, uh, intimating it's dangerous for her trade, much better to stay on her feet. When Ruby excuses herself to comb hair in the bathroom, Dorothy Burgess, who plays Gypsy, enters drunk and clinging to Eddie, 
wanting to moss his hair and make further gestures to claim him. Everything stops when Harlow returns from the bathroom. The men look positively frightened. Gypsy reels around the room, unsteady from drink, demanding to know who Ruby is, as the platinum blonde replies, the Queen of Sheba. Gypsy attempts to hit Ruby. Gable's Eddie insults Gypsy, saying that her kind should keep moving. She asks for her cold cream, which viewers recognize as a stall tactic, and that she'll issue another volley before she leaves. Gypsy indeed slaps Ruby on the cheek. Ruby returns fire with a square punch on Gypsy's chin. Round one goes to Ruby. The next morning, having spent the night with Eddie, Ruby learns from Slim, Gary Owen, that Gypsy was locked up after she left Eddie's place. He tells her, She licked up a little too much bathroom gin and started to take off her clothes in the street. (laughs) She always does that when she gets a few drinks in her. Ruby doesn't gloat or take any pleasure from the news. She's sorry to hear it. At this point, the film transforms into a woman's picture. Luce deviates from the typical rivalry dynamics in exchange for a woman who harbors empathy for another one she may not even like. Gable's character Eddie becomes less important after he plans a scam using Ruby as a bait and bursts into the room to see her dress torn from the drunken Mark. This ruse was known as the Honey Badger scam, where one man demands a payoff from another man making an untoward advance on a lady. Anita Luce knew about this from Wilson Meisner, a Barbary Coast scoundrel who was the great love of her life. He pulled this gag on many occasions. Invariably, the man pays hush money. Gable recedes um, to the narrative margins after he accidentally kills the guy, proposes, and then abandons her when neighbors identify Ruby to the police. If you've been paying attention to films of this era, you know that women invariably take the blame when their man runs afoul of the law. Rotten luck continues when Ruby learns she's in the same dormitory as Gypsy, who has a picture of Eddie tacked over her bed. They exchange pleasantries. Gypsy. It ain't two weeks ago he sent me ten bucks for Christmas. You all know that. I guess that's a bit of news for a certain somebody. He was tossing $10 bills to all the tramps at Christmas. Did you get yours, or did he give you the gate? You know, you wouldn't be a bad-looking dame if it wasn't for your face. They end their reunion by repeating a slap from Gypsy and a punch to the jaw from Ruby. Their violent encounter keeps the women in separate corners until Gypsy's release. Before she exits the penitentiary, another inmate tells Gypsy what everyone else already knows. Ruby is pregnant. Howling with laughter, she walks to freedom as Ruby stays behind bars, humiliated and vulnerable with child. Time passes without a word from Eddie Hall. One day, Ruby has a visitor, her first since she began her sentence. Gypsy waits for her in the visitor's room. Ruby turns on her heels, figuring she's come to gloat or continue their history of trading barbed comments. Instead, Gypsy's attitude has morphed from antagonist to ally. What explains her complete reversal? Gypsy learned that Ruby sent her the $10 for Christmas, not Eddie. And there in the truth, we see a woman's true character and Eddie's lack of one. Ruby could have shoved it in Gypsy's face during her first day in prison. 
Ruby could have snickered at the kindness Gypsy perceived from a man who no longer knew she existed, but she didn't. Ruby was generous and kept her own counsel about it, just like one should in the true spirit of Christmas. Ruby extended goodwill towards Eddie's former lover, even though they weren't even friends. Anita Luce gives us a plot twist that rescues women's relationships from film cliches about cartoon hair-pulling adversaries. Men sometimes possess memories as short as their infatuation. Once gone, they forget to send a tenor when th things seem their bleakest. Sisters of the sass mouth remember all too well, and they won't spurn you for a drunken striptease. Jean Harlow told reporters, they had me singing in a reformatory. My singing would be enough to get me in, but I'd never be able to sing my way out. Another standout plot development concerns Teresa Harris's character, Lily Mae Crippen. One of the inmates explains that she was passing around more than the collection plate in her father's church. Ruby wonders why, uh, why Lily Mae doesn't use her father's influence to commute a prison sentence to which the preacher's daughter responds that her father was the one responsible for her incarceration. Only one person comments about Lily May being an African-American. Gypsy declares, you're the only dark cloud I ever liked, and she leaves the reformatory. But Lily May isn't segregated in a separate cell block. When her father, Reverend Crippen, played by George Reeve, arrives, his spiritual clout resists the institution's power to define the women as outlaws or criminals. All God's children are loved, he tells Ruby and his daughter. Anita Luce wrote that any set with Harlow and Gable was paradise, maybe because of what she called their incessant exchange of hot shots. In her biography, Platinum Girl, The Life and Leg Legend of Jean Harlow, Eve Golden notes that Harlow called Clark, you big Ohio bully and in turn he dubbed her the chromium blonde. They staged mocked feuds when the press were on set. During a love scene one day, Clark tried to throw her off her game by saying, Jean, you've got your eyebrows on upside down. On a more professional note, Clark told Anita Luce that Jean sets the pace for me that keeps me on my toes every minute. She anticipates every move and meets you more than halfway. When it comes to weighing dramatic values, Jean's scales need no adjustment. Sam Wood says she's a mind reader and kidnaps his thoughts before he can express them. Luce's script underscores the Reverend's moral high ground during the denouement, where the law of God defeats the law of man. Snuck into the prison as Bertha's brother, Gables Ed Hall waits to see Ruby because Gypsy told him about the pregnancy and he's there to do right by her and the baby. He begs the reverend to marry them before he's caught and sent off to prison so that the baby will have a father's name on the birth certificate. The reverend faces a difficult dilemma. He must defy white wardens and policemen and claim the higher authority. Reverend Crippen opts for love over law. Under his proclamation that the marriage is just, he restores humanity to the stern facility. The white guards just stand by. Their authority loses power in the chapel. By officiating the wedding ceremony, the reverend also corrects the earlier scene in the chapel where each woman was forced to sing a missionary hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, when clearly some of them were of Jewish or Buddhist faiths. In an institution that grinds women into a dull, conformist, homogeneous mass, 
The wedding affirms their individuality and human rights. In a progressive move, the script bestows the moral high ground on a character played by George Reed, a man born one year after the abolition of slavery in America. Once production ended, Jean had prepared for a much-needed rest in Chicago, but the studio called her in for additional scenes. Daryl Rooney and Mark Vieira explain in their gorgeous book, Harlow in Hollywood, The Blonde Bombshell and the Glamour Capital, 1928-1937, that Harlow complained to the press about the studio decision to add a stepfather to the plot. The idea was for the stepfather, with Guy Kibbe cast in the part, to offer the reason for why Ruby went off the straight and narrow for the life of a scam artist. He had corrupted her. The authors include a picture of Kibbe in a plaintive position talking to Harlow in Adrian's shoulder uh, twist-tie dress. Fortunately, though, the additional scenes never made it into the final cut. Aside from the bonkers frock, Adrian kept Jean's wardrobe simple, from a black satin dressing gown with faux ostrich feather trim to the prison uniform, so that nothing detracts from the emotional depth Jean explores from sassmouth dame to alone and vulnerable in the world with a child on the way. Jean shines in this role that asked her to do more than just look sexy, and she nails it. Her comedy chops are also unimpeachable. George Cukor noted that she played comedy as naturally as a hen lays an egg. After Hold Your Man, Harlow made Bombshell and then went on suspension when she asked for her contract to be renegotiated for more money. She had been making 1500 a week and asked for a rise to 5000 While she waited, she spent the rest of 1933 writing Today is Tonight. Screenwriter Carrie Wilson helped her to polish it. Harlow dreamed that she would play her heroine, Judy Lansdowne, on the big screen. It didn't happen because Ma- Louis B. Mayer exercised his clout. Jean said of her character, she's a girl with a lot of love who weakens now and then, but clings to an ideal that finally comes through triumphant. The outrageous plot is a total page-turner. The dialogue is snappy and crackles with the juicy colloquialisms of her era. Shortly after their third wedding anniversary, Judy's husband Peter is blinded in an accident, and then they lose all their money in the stock market crash of 1929. Judy agrees to stage a Lady Godiva tableau for a charity event. She receives a mysterious letter the next morning from a man who wants to pay her $200 to restage the scene every Saturday night in a hot nightclub. She convinces her husband that day is night and night is day so that he won't know what she's up to. Along the way, she has a hot affair with Peter's best friend and her former beau, Bill Reynolds. The novel wasn't published in Jean's short lifetime. When she died in 1937 at the age of 26, her mother inherited the rights. When her mother died, she left it to a friend who later sold it to publishers in 1965. Copies are hard to find and quite expensive, but grab one if you can. Don't believe David Sten or anyone else who claims that Jean didn't write this. It's Harlow line by line on every page. I'll leave you with three brief excerpts from Today is Tonight. The first scene takes place at the society party before Judy agrees to stage Lady Godiva. The second is when she gets the nightclub job offer. And the third takes place when the best friend and future lover Bill sees her act in the nightclub. Ah, said a triumphant voice. I didn't know when I've heard such good news. 
Judy having worse luck is a delightful change for the better. She's always had too much of everything. Sally Everett had stepped in front of Peggy, her manner challenging, while she made sure that her smile completely belied the tang of her words. Hello, Sally, said Judy, and relished the thought of disarranging the blonde coiffure, which, she reluctantly admitted, was entirely new, much smarter than her own, and which she would copy immediately. Peggy furtively made a face at Judy, conveying the idea that there was a slight distasteful odor about Mrs. Everett, and headed for the bar. Sally lifted an appraising finger to the shoulder strap of Judy's gown. It had slipped. Is that dress meant to be that way, she cooed sweetly, her eyes outrageously large. Is it meant to slip all the way down? Quite by accident, of course. Because if it is, I wish you'd tell me just when it's going to fall off. I don't want to miss the show. Judy couldn't resist the temptation. She saw that they were quite alone at the end of the room. With a quick movement of both hands, she flipped the narrow ribbons from her shoulders and pulled down the smart little dress, which cost her $300 before... That'll give you something to really talk about, Sally, she said smoothly. I didn't know that breasts were such a treat to you. The frock was back in place and Judy's face was serene and triumphant before Sally could fully comprehend the depth of the insult. Thanks for the buggy ride, she rejoined nastily. Mr. Wolfson's office would have been impressive to anybody but Judy, familiar with the luxurious quarters with which Wall Streeters surrounded themselves, before the autumn of 1929 had literally shaken the pictures from the walls by an earthquake more devastating in its effect on humanity than any Japanese cataclysm. The pictures on these walls were photographs of theatrical personalities, inscribed in an almost domestic familiarity with greetings from the subjects thereof. She studied the photographs as she waited for the slim, cool, and well-dressed secretary to take her name beyond the door marked private. She realized that until now her education had been sadly neglected. She had never known there was such a thing as white ink. Most of these pictorial likenesses were inscribed slavishly in white ink on the black lower right-hand corner of the bad photographs which the, the theatrical business persisted in using to exploit otherwise its romantic headliners. Mr. Wolfson turned out to be a person of intelligence, with a shrewd face and straightforward eyes. Judy knew that he was successfully auditing her costume. She was comforted in the knowledge that he had at once made comparison with his best clients. She seated herself easily in a chair, with the assurance that the comparison was not to her disadvantage. Mr. Wolfson was not only intelligent, but he was voluble. You're a very beautiful young woman, he said without prelude. You've got personality in carloads. In these days, I can talk plainly to anybody, and I don't think you're just anybody, so I'm going to talk plainly. I saw you last night at the Junior Guild Show. I went there with a man who could pretty nearly pay off all the debts you society people owe. Judy always relished the opportunity to clarify things. I don't know what the word society means, she said blandly. I think it's probably something like the definition of a gentleman. A gentleman is a man who never uses the word gentleman. Wolfson got the rebuke and liked her for making it. Sold, he said pleasantly. Let's not use the word society. The gentleman, and I use the word advisedly because he is always mentioning it, owns a string of night spots. 
and his dough has been acquired without the benefit of clergy. I'm not trying to sell you anything. If I talk your language at all, it's because I'm married to a girl who went to the same school you did and then went wrong when she married me. I'll talk turkey, if not English. I want to collect 10%, my usual and legal commission, and I'm not always legal, of 200 perfectly good round dollars I can get you each and every Saturday night for doing that Lady Godiva splash in the Club Heron. Do I get a reaction? The Club Heron has charged you $1.75 for a bottle of ginger ale a good many times, or I don't know my onions. You wouldn't kid me, would you? asked Judy with a wry smile. There's a catch to it somewhere. I happen to know a lad from California who walked into the Club Heron one night and had three bottles of ginger ale and woke up the next morning married to a girl he thought he'd seen in the floor show. She was still working there in the show the next night. I know because he was still plastered and took us there. She had 32-inch hips and a 38-inch bust, if I am any judge of what we humorously call bosoms. She got $50 a week for being just so nude that I could measure her to the last quarter inch. $50 a week for thus decorating the world and what, and my husband taught me about horses and harness, could well be described as a sir single. So what do you want of me? He looked at her approvingly. It's a racket, he said. For six weeks, the joint will advertise they've got a society girl giving her all. Whether or not you explode any of the cash customers doesn't matter. Personally, I think you're quite a dish, and so does the gentleman who's going to slip you the two yards. I thought you said two yards and a half, Judy remarked innocently. My error, insisted Wolfson. But of course, there's only one thing my man insists on. I know, Judy said brightly. He wants to powder me himself. Sorry, you've been reading the newspapers. If there's... If, <clears throat> If this bird even so much as buys an art magazine, a 98-pound redhead keeps him awake all night, and I mean awake. I said this was a racket, but rackets are also a business. What's the catch, demanded Judy. You've got to wear a mask, Wolfson said reluctantly. Judy wanted to laugh out loud. Instead, she probed the niceties of the situation further. I wouldn't think of it, she said boldly. Her heart was hungry despite the insanity of it all. Two yards and a half was undoubtedly, was most certainly, $250 a week. I wouldn't think of working in a nightclub. Wilson lifted his hand in complete understanding of her banality. Sure, sure, he comforted her, and I'll even let you pick out the horse. Bill felt himself even more ridiculously conspicuous when he was placed at the ringside table to find himself occupying only one of the six chairs surrounding it. He surveyed dispassionately the girls who wriggled themselves about the floor in a pattern designed to bring their charms as close as possible to the encircling table of observers. Nor was he honestly dispassionate, for his single thought was of entire disbelief. He recalled without humor the drunken man who feverishly begged to know if anyone were saying the same thing he saw. It could not be that these girls were real, alive, lovely young girls so freely exposing themselves, and, if the gods of Bali were potent gods, each of these neophytes must have prayed well for that heavenly boon which produces the prayed-for physical inclinations. May they point to the northeast and the northwest.
One of them reminded Bill of Sally. It was the flat, smooth area of flesh beneath her armpit. Sally was always exposing and exploiting this particular charm. He dismissed the dancing girl with the same honest lack of interest he had permitted her to sense only an hour before. The lights went out. The curtains closed, shutting off the semi-stage from the dance floor proper. With audible rattle of pulleys, the rhinestone monogram draperies drew back. Before him was, in artificial perspective, the replica of a street which must be England of a few many years ago. A girl on a white horse seemed to be at the far end of that street and yet was not there at all in reality. Before the succession of illusions had brought the actual Lady Godiva on the very real white horse to the center of the stage, Bill knew that it was Judy. This was the answer to the thousand and one questions he had been asking himself ever since. A week ago, he had sensed an incoherent evasion in Judy's daily reports to him. He squinted at his, his eyes to focus them on Lady Godiva's left ankle. A thin, crisp shadow betrayed to him that the anklet of small pearls was in place. Better than any man save Peter, Bill knew that Judy would never take that anklet off. It was there. So the masked lady was Judy. The straying fringe of spotlight lifted Bill out of his fantasia into recognizable reality and Judy's eyes and consciousness. By the time she got back to her dressing room, she had formulated the note to send him to ask his mercy and understanding. A note from Bill awaited her. On the back of a half-menu card, the words nervously loose and doubly indented and the reverse of the gold embossing, Bill had written, I'll be waiting for you. Suddenly, she felt horribly ashamed. I never thought of Bill the way I'm thinking of him now. I never thought that I'd feel this way about Bill, seeing me in the silly get-up. It isn't that he saw me without any clothes on. He saw me this way in the Guild show. It's, it's that anybody can see me like this by paying to get in, and I don't like to think of Bill knowing that. Bill's going to give me the devil. Bill, dear, dear Bill, help me. Thanks very much for sticking with me for episode three. Join me for episode four when I'll be talking about Joan Crawford in Torch Song from 1953. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun to tan me, palms to 